Good morning, everyone. A beautiful day. What an awesome God. Uh, there are a few announcements before we begin uh, the service today, uh, the sermon. Um, the draft roster is in the foyer, so if you've signed up, just check to make sure that you're there. And uh, I do encourage you to check it out because there are some openings. So see if the Lord would have you con- just pray- prayerfully consider where he would have you serve. We're all blessed by people who contribute of their time and efforts to uh, minister to the body. So thanks to all of you who faithfully serve. Um, deposits for church camp. Those are due. So get those in. Um, and thanks to those who are signed up and ready to go. That will be in April 15 to 18, um, 15, 18, April in 2024. So looking forward to that should be good. Uh, today we will receive communion. So at toward the end of the service, I will just invite people to come forward and take of the bread and the cup and lead us in a prayer. And it's, this is for all Christians Um, And you are welcome and invited to partake in obedience to our Savior. And if you're not born again yet, today is the day. I like, uh, you know, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to have a changed heart, to have your life turned around through faith in Jesus. And uh, even those who know him, sometimes we too need to turn to him because we can turn to so many other things for hope or help or just... uh, because we are sometimes, well, in ourselves, often, always misguided. Uh, Just praise the Lord that he's so patient with us. He helps us and and guides us into truth. And uh, thanks for being here, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you do speak to us, that you do turn our lives around, that you do miracles, that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you provide forgiveness, you provide a new heart and a renewed mind and a clean conscience. And the joy of the Lord, that is our strength. And we thank you for filling us with your spirit and allowing us to have fellowship with one another through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would increase our faith, that you would fill us with your spirit today to hear what you're saying to the church and that we'd respond with joy and obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes our words, maybe you found this, can come back to bite us. Um, In accusing someone else, it just points out our own failings or faults. I've seen some smug criminals who've unwittingly implicated themselves by kind of taunting the police or, or divulging things about the crime that could not have been known unless you were physically there and incriminated themselves. I think of Haman. He's a, he's a classic example of someone whose criticism against others resulted in his own demise The king had commanded that everyone bow before Haman when he walked through the streets and Mordecai, who was a Jew, refused to bow. And so when when Haman saw this, he was angry and he said, I'm not going to bother just arresting one man. I'm going to make a law to exterminate all the Jews. And so he's angry about him not bowing down, breaking the law, but he deceives the king. His motive was concealed to unlawfully execute and exterminate all the Jews in the kingdom. And so, and that included Queen Esther, which he didn't realize. And he went as far as to build a gallows in his front yard that he wanted Mordecai to be dangling from. He was the king. He was the man the king delighted to honor. 
And when the story came out to the king and it was revealed what Haman had done, he was hanged on the gallows that he had made for Haman. I mean, for Mordecai. And then Mordecai was promoted to his position. We'll be in Romans 2 today if you want to turn there. I always encourage you to follow along with your Bibles if you have them with you. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to Romans, to Christians. They were both Jews and Gentiles. In the beginning, he talks about how God has revealed the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. How God's righteousness is revealed by his judgment of sin. And those who suppress the truth of God, uh, those who would not glorify him, those who were unthankful, he gave them over to uncleanness, vile passions, and those who didn't acknowledge or reverence him, it says he gave them up to a debased mind. So with a broken mind, with a ruined conscience, man was overtaken by many sins. So there's a long list of different sins in chapter one. And Paul knew that people would use that list to justify themselves, just like the Jews did the law. They, instead of the law being, using it rightly to point out their sin, they pointed out how good they were because they kept it. And so he cuts off all escape from the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And uh, he, he shuts the door. So chapter two is really slamming the door on all of those who were self-righteous and glad that they had not been mentioned in chapter one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is us. This is what we can do. Uh, Romans chapter two, verse one. Therefore you are inexcusable. O man, whoever you are, who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Whenever we see the word, therefore we it's referring to the text that goes immediately before it. And he had explained that God revealed himself to mankind. He gave him, gave man his laws. He's given each person a conscience, but man has embraced what God deems sin and evil. Ignorance was not the issue, but the unwillingness and inability to do what people know to be right. That was the problem. Romans 1:32. it says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them to approve of sin is a rejection of God and his righteousness. And this brings condemnation. And so now Paul is taking aim at the moral people, the law abiding citizens who nodded approvingly, where he says, you know, murder is wrong and adultery and sexual sin is wrong and pride and boasting and malice. Those are sins. And they're like, yes. Those sinners, yes, agreed. Those people over there. So the obvious sinner, the one who approves of the sinner and those who condemn the sinner and judge the sinner, all equally guilty before God. And this should be shocking to us. It was shocking to the people, I'm sure, when they read this, because they're like, hold on, wait a minute, I'm not a murderer. You've mentioned all these things. I don't do that. That doesn't mark my life, but we have hated others and hate is from what murder springs. Self-righteous Jews, they saw the Romans as idolaters because of their many images that they bowed to and reverenced and burned incense to. But the Pharisees idolized their own image in the sight of men. 
They wanted to keep up this clean exterior to re- because they loved the praises of men rather than the praise of God. They wanted praise. So they were still in sin, even though they didn't do these things that these obvious sinners did. So our sin may differ in severity or degree, but a moral man is still a sinner. And that's a point that Paul is making. Think of kids in the back seat. You know, the one kid is poking the other and the other kid either slaps him or daubs him in. Not because he is loving him to do that. He wants to trouble him as much as he's being troubled by being poked and prodded. So it's like neither of them are loving each other. Neither of them are being gracious or kind to one another, right? They're both in the wrong, even though one of them started it and whoever started it, that wasn't the first thing that something happened between those two. So there was, there was a big long story that happened before that little punch up in the back seat. Verse two, it says, we know God's judgment is according to truth, according against those who practice such things. So overtly sinning, approving of sinners or judging them. And this judging, it speaks of condemning. It speaks of a self-righteous, holier than thou, looking down on others as sinners, as if you have no sin. Uh, This is different from using righteous judgment. Jesus tells people to use righteous judgment to uphold the judgment of God as in his word. Right? Because he has made judgments on things of what is right and wrong and told us. And it's not sinful to uphold and to follow what God says is right. Uh, during Jesus' ministry in Israel, a lot of people made judgments about him. What were some of the things they judged? They said, well, he is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is demon possessed. He's a Sabbath breaker. That's how some people judge Jesus to be. Some plotted to kill him because they saw him as a sinner, even though he's the son of God. In John five, Jesus healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And it was on the Sabbath day. He told them to take up his bed and walk. And the religious Jews were very offended. It said they sought to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. A couple chapters later, when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem in the feast of the tabernacles, he taught in the temple and he reasoned with them in John 7, 23 and 24. He says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. By healing a sick man on the Sabbath day, Jesus showed it's lawful and good to heal on the Sabbath day and every day. This is acceptable. Jesus is God doing what God does, healing people. The rulers missed this entirely because they judged him according to appearances, according to their traditions. And he pointed out how their, their hypocrisy, how in seeking to avoid breaking the law, because the law said that on the eighth day, a male child needs to be circumcised, that that constitutes work. They would agree that is work. The cutting that's work, but to avoid breaking the law, they would circumcise on the Sabbath. So they made exceptions for themselves, but they would not make an exception for God to do a miracle among them. Moral people can be judgmental. It's biased in your own favor, focused on other people's sins and ignoring your own. That's the problem. It's not that you recognize what sin is, but you're not even bothering to look at your own heart and confess that with humility and repentance. So 
Romans 2, verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you know that there is no special skill or training, uh, training required to identify flaws in other people? We all have like doctorates in this naturally because we are flawed ourselves. In this case, it's true. It takes one to know one. And when you can see the arrogance and the boastfulness and the pride in others, it's saying something about you. And Paul explained that condemning others as wrong does not make us innocent. Now, wouldn't that be convenient if that was the case that we, by pointing out the flaws of others, we are exonerated, but no, we are condemned. It says, I think of someone pulled over They're speeding along and, and a cop pulls up behind them, pulls them over and they get a fine. And they decide to contest it in court because the cop had to speed to catch up with them. So he's like, because the, and so your honor, the cop was definitely speeding because yeah, it was 80, but he went 120 to catch me and he had to, or else he never would have. Well, you are your own mouth has condemned you. You were obviously speeding. So you're still, it doesn't matter if the cop was speeding or not. You're speeding and that's why you're in court today. It's your guilt that we're talking about. So pointing others have done wrong or, you know, he should know better. He's a cop. That's irrelevant to the fact you have been fined. Your, your license has been taken away for three months because you were speeding. Criticizing others doesn't mean we've always been obedient and self-righteousness. It results in arrogance that cannot save us. So Paul explains one who sees himself as morally superior or better than others. He's presuming upon the goodness of God, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And he's like, don't you realize that, that it's God's goodness. It's his kindness, his long suffering. You're taking that for granted as if you deserve it, but he's been patient with you. He's been kind to you. He's been good towards you, knowing the sin that you've done, knowing the sin you will do. And he has remained patient with you. He's been kind to you. The Jews, they did nothing to deserve God's revelation to them, to receive his commands and guidance, that his presence would dwell within them, that he would give them his laws. And we've done nothing good to deserve the forgiveness of God to be brought into the family of Christ in the church through faith in Jesus. Like we don't deserve that. And now we're going to be harsh and criticize and condemn others when we have been redeemed and saved by his grace. I love the picture of God's kindness toward the children of Israel in Hosea 11, one through four. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son as they called them. So they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. God loved the Hebrews. He called them to himself. He removed that yoke of bondage spiritual slavery as well as physical slavery. And he says, I drew them close with bond, with cords of love. 
No, he wasn't driving them with a scourge or beating them with clubs. He, he allured them. He drew them gently to himself. But despite his love, it was not long before they departed from him. It says he went after idols. And, and he showed such kindness in teaching them to walk. He adopted them as his own. And, and he healed them and he fed them. And they had no idea what he had done for them. They didn't appreciate it, but he still did it. And he was still faithful to love them and was good to them. And if we delight to condemn others in arrogance, as if we're good ourselves, we may not realize that it's actually God's goodness that leads us to repent. Law demands justice without mercy, but hasn't God been merciful to us to give us a whole lifetime to repent and to respond to the gospel and the truth in his word? So we're going to talk about this word quite a bit, but it's good to talk about, well, what is repentance or what is, what does it mean to repent? Well, it plays a critical role in salvation and godly living, like really a godly lifestyle. It's not something you just do to be converted, but it's something we all are to continually do when we recognize we have sinned. It literally means a change of mind. It means to agree with God. And this results in a changed heart and a changed life. Uh, Grudem, he defines repentance as a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, the Bible connects repentance of sin and faith together as different aspects to the same act in coming to Jesus for salvation. It's like we turn to Jesus for salvation. We also turn from the sin that we want him to save us from. So that's, that's both happening at the same time. It's like feeling sorry for sin by itself. That's not repentance. It's in turning. It's like hearing the truth saying, you know, God is right. I have been wrong forsaking the sin, turning from it, and then turning to the Lord in obedience. If we don't turn from sin, we can't claim to have turned to Christ, right? Because Christ is not sinful in any way. So we must turn from the sin in turning to Christ. It's not something we do to earn salvation, but it's a condition to be saved. Just like a sailboat has to be placed in water before it can sail anywhere. So if we want to come to Jesus, if we want to turn to him, we must turn from the sin and then put our faith in him. And it's by God's grace we can repent and be saved. We see that repentance is a gift of God received by those who trust in Christ because uh, the Jews marveled of the Gentiles, it says in Acts eleven eighteen, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So they received that by the gift of God through faith and turned to Christ. And we see examples of this in the Old and the New Testament. If you want to turn to one in Isaiah uh, 55, starting in verse six, we see a really a demonstration of what repentance is. It doesn't uh, use the word repent, but it's a great practical example of what it looks like. Isaiah 55 verse six, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So when confronted with the truth of God's word, it's those who hear it and go like, yeah, I'm, I'm lumped in with the sinner. I've been, I have not 
followed God at all. I've been following sin and to have that change of heart to now seek the Lord while he may be found and, and abandon your sinful thoughts and choose God instead. Uh, Jesus said of the men of Nineveh that they rose up with judgment to his generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and God saved them. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. He said, repent and believe the gospel on the day of Pentecost. When the Jews said, what shall we do? Uh, Peter said, repent and be baptized. He doesn't even mention faith, but we know that it's through faith that we're saved. So repentance is a key part of both conversion and our sanctification of growing in grace. Um, and Paul, he also wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. He had rebuked them and they sorrowed over their sin and repented. And uh, we read this in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. Paul said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We see that repentance involves sorrow, a brokenness for sin, knowing that in choosing sin, we have despised and rejected God. We have undermined our relationship with him and then leaving the sin to now seek the Lord, this repentance leading to salvation. And that's, we regret sinning, hopefully, but sorrow that leads to godly repentance, that's, we should not regret that because it leads to salvation and to the, really the joy of the Lord. So may God grant us all repentance daily. So we might have hearts inclined to God that turn from sin, that turn to God in faith and obedience. Picking up in Romans two, verse five, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God. Now, Paul wants us to take this personally. He doesn't say they, those people. He says you. <laughs> and so he takes aim at the reader, at the hearer to say, take this warning to heart. You can be on either side of this in, in the Lord. You can be genuinely converted and there's still consequences for sin. And he addresses all sinful humanity to, to warn us of the consequence of being hardened in our sin, refusing to hear him or to respond and in doing so, what are we doing? It says treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. Now wrath, it's violent anger. It's just punishment for offense or crime. It's like in choosing sin, you are daily adding to like a superannuation account of wrath upon yourself. It's like adding a fuel. It's adding a log to the fuel of God's wrath that burns against sin. And you are stoking that flame by your continued refusal to repent. Now, the second part of this chapter 
It's directed specifically toward the Jews. We'll look at that next week. But Paul's taking pains to explain there's no partiality with God because the Jews felt very entitled to the blessings and goodness of God. And we can also do the same in the church. We can say, well, I'm adopted into God's family and I've been blessed um, through Christ. I've been born again and saved. So, you know, I'm home free. I don't need to really worry about any sin in my life because Jesus took it all. And we don't realize that God would have us live righteously because he's made us righteous, that we would actually cease um, condemning others and walking in grace towards all to. And so the Jews, they, uh, they thought they were blessed by God. And they certainly were because of their connection to Abraham, because of the covenant of circumcision, uh, because of the law of Moses, they felt exclusively entitled to blessings from God because of their standing with him, which was all by his grace. And also Gentiles in the church who had come out of, let's say, a heathen or pagan lifestyle. They had repented of their sin. They received Christ by faith. Uh, But they began to look with disdain upon others who had not turned from their sin and looked at them as lesser. And this is a problem for the unsaved and the saved. Because God will render to each one according to his needs. Now, this is not a formula for eternal salvation. It's to demonstrate that all will receive rewards for doing good to suffer reward, uh, to suffer the loss of reward or have trouble because of our sin. So as a Christian, if we choose sin and continually choose sin, it will trouble us. There will be consequences. Um, The emphasis of this section is that our just God will see to it that we reap what we sow in this life and in the life to come, regardless of who your father is, if it's Abraham, or if you are part of a church, because God's an impartial Jew to both Jew, uh, excuse me, an impartial judge to Jew and Gentile. No one's going to receive preferential treatment because of your place in society or your role in the church, that we're all sinners. We're all condemned before God. And we have no, we have no hope in ourselves to save ourselves. The fact that God's people were chosen by him should have led to humility. Instead, they had this arrogance and pride. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10 verse 15. And we read of God's justice here. This was, these are words written to Hebrews under the law of Moses. While the Jews are God's special people, It didn't mean that the Gentiles were any less special because he loves them all. Deuteronomy 10, 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples, as it is this day, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer for the Lord. Your God is God of gods and Lord of Lords, the great God mighty and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. So he's like, I chose your fathers because I love them. They did nothing to deserve it. They weren't even seeking God, but God sought them and he called them and they responded by his grace. The right response was to view the special calling to humble their, humble them, to soften their hearts, to obey God. We don't always respond in the right way, do we? We can disobey. We can be proud and arrogant. 
Um, but God's justice was shown in providing for the outcasts of society to the stranger foreigners, giving them food and clothing because God loves them too. When entitlement enters our hearts, it strangles grace. Remember, grace is freely given by God out of his goodness to the undeserving. Grace, God's grace is his help to know and to do God's will. And it's also the good standing that we have with God. It's all by his grace. By grace, we are saved through faith. And it's disastrous when people use their knowledge of the law or God's will, their position in a church, or let's say in the Sanhedrin, the good works they do think that the law does not apply to them. It's very problematic. Now the Pharisees were very skilled at this. They would use the law and and their knowledge of the law to work around the law, to find loopholes in it, to justify their sin. I had a friend in high school who, whose keen interest to study law was only to find loopholes so he could legally break it. And I'm like, you're the kind of guy that should never do law because I don't want you as my lawyer. If, if it's all about how to your knowledge of the law, can you can escape the punishment of the law, which was his aim. And if we feel entitled or we demand our rights, it works to choke out humility. Laura and I years ago used to go to baseball games in San Diego and we, we sometimes sat out in the bleachers. Then for a few years, we got season tickets. And I noticed a big difference between the people that were just, you know, in the cheap seats and those who were in the, it wasn't like we were in this exclusive area, but you know, we had our own seats that you pay for and it's like your seat. And there could be room all around. There could be a hundred, 200 empty seats, a handful of people and people would go, they're in my seat. And they would get the usher. They wouldn't even talk to them. They just go straight to the usher. Hey, there's a people in my seat. I want you to, okay, we'll move them. Oh, excuse me. Can you please move? You're in their seat. And like, I never saw that out, out in the bleachers, but the people who were paying for these season tickets, there was a sense of entitlement. Like I pay for the seat. This is my seat. I want that one. So move, <laughs> get out of there. Christians were guilty of condemning others when they were proud, when they were haughty and arrogant and judgmental because they weren't sinning in the same. They didn't see it as the same as the other person's sin. So they were like offended, petty season ticket holders pointing out that people are sitting in the wrong seat when they refuse to walk in humility, mercy, and love to them. And God's like, I see this. Don't think that you will avoid judgment because you are aware of others' sinfulness. So Christians with Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, they were exhorted to consider that God's going to judge those inside the church, those outside the church without partiality, according to their obedience or disobedience. Would they give grace and love? Would they forgive as God freely forgave them? Picking up in verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them 
in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. God, when he judges the minds and hearts of men, mankind, he does not judge them by a standard that they do not have a standard that they are not aware of. He judges them according to what they know. The Jews, they were given the law of Moses. They looked down on others who did not follow the law or even have the law because they were doing what they deemed to be sinful. Like let's say eating pork. So uh, to people under the law, they saw someone eating pork as being defiled. They were sinning, but realized that other person was not under the same law. It's kind of like the road rules in California and the U S and new South Wales, depending on where you are and where you're driving, different government, different rules. You drive on the other side of the road and you're held accountable to the law that w- of the land where you are. The point is those who had, um, it's like those who know the law, those who have been given the law, you are not innocent because you know it, but because you do it, you actually follow it. And because you follow it, you are now just or justified. The Jews were blessed to have the revelation of God and his law. Thus it was Jews, not Gentiles who were judged by the law. God was not condemning people without the law for not having the law. They were condemned because they disobeyed the laws that they had. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, men are not saved by the light they have. They are judged by the light they have. So it's not the hearer of the law that's justified, but the doer of the law. That's saying like, yep, you're in the right. You have obeyed the law. And Paul pointed out that Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses, they established a personal moral standard they agreed with that agreed with God's laws. And that's because God's graciously given everyone a conscience, which means with knowledge, the ability to know right from wrong. And the conscience is, as this scripture states, it's a true moral authority. It is a law to ourselves. It's like a Philistine or an Amalekite who believed it's wrong to murder people and steal their stuff and obeyed their conviction was like a Jew who was carefully observing the sixth and eighth command, which is thou shalt not kill or murder and thou shalt not steal. So the conscience, it's what accuses us or excuses us in our own minds. We feel guilty when we know we've done wrong. No one even has to say, you've been wrong. You've done wrong. We just know that like, oh, that was unkind. That was an unkind thing to say. No one told you that, but you just know that was unkind. Or perhaps um, someone accuses you of doing something. You're like, hey, I did not do anything wrong. In the innocency of my heart, I did this. And you can feel very justified in the fact that you know your motives, that you weren't trying to, to steal, but you, were, you had the right heart in this matter. And so these feelings of guilt and shame, we have those from sin, but we also are excused by a conscience when we don't have done what's right. So Paul's not saying that a Gentile can perfectly keep the law because of his conscience. But we all know there's been laws we have broken of God's word. We have also gone against what we know to be wrong in our conscience. So whether we're judged by the law or judged by our conscience, guess what? We are all sinners. We have all broken God's law. We're all guilty. We cannot on our own be declared righteous. Now a word on the conscience. 
It generally agrees with biblical morality, but it's not always a trustworthy or static gauge of right and wrong. It's often connected with feelings of guilt or feeling innocent, but our feelings, they're not always accurate. The Bible describes people's conscience at different times. Sometimes it's described as a good conscience or a clean or pure conscience. Other times a conscience can be corrupted. It can be seared. So that's without feeling you feel nothing or, or guilty. Think about a parent that may feel personally responsible or guilty. If their child chooses at some point to walk away from Jesus, yet parents are not responsible for the decisions of their children. And the love that you have for your son or daughter can prompt wallowing in guilt when you're not in sin. This is not your sin. We can take, we, we have to choose if we'll take the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in his word and what he's promised and what he's accomplished or how we feel, which will we give more weight to? And even if we can look at our sin and say, I feel terrible because my sin negatively impacted other people. We don't have to remain in perpetual guilt. It says in one John three eighteen through 20, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So when you have repented of a sin, a sin that is like happening today or a sin that happened a long time ago, you do not have to remain feeling guilty when you have repented of it and turned to Jesus Christ. As followers of Christ, we should repent whenever we sin. When we are convicted, we turn from it. We, we choose to love others as God has called us to. And we should take our feelings and our thoughts to the Lord in prayer, joyfully surrendering to our will. But I love that God is greater than your heart. He's greater than your feelings. He's greater than your sin. He has provided us cleansing of both our hearts from sin and our consciences from guilt, which is awesome. You know, the gospel, it's the new and living way that God's made for us by faith in Christ. Hebrews 10, says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are often conscious of the fact we have sinned. It can seem very easy for us to admit I am a sinner. It's harder to admit that I am a liar or I am a thief. We also know what Jesus has done for sinners, that Jesus has come to earth. God in the flesh and what he did for us on the cross by laying down his life to provide atonement for sin and rising from the dead the third day that he's conquered sin and death. Now it was customary for Jews to use a mikvah for purification. And that's a vessel that would have flowing clean water in it. And you would do this before you went up to offer sacrifices or when someone converted to Judaism or before marriage. And this was not taking a bath. You would take a bath before the mikvah. You would take care of all your physical hygiene long before you went into the mikvah because it was a ceremonial cleansing. It was a ritual purification of the Jews before they went before God. 
And that's how they were purified before seeing, before going before God's presence. Now, I love this. Jesus is the source of living water. They would call that, it would need to be living water in the mikvah, a, a natural flow, whether it's from underground spring or from rainwater that would have an inlet and an outlet where this water is flowing through. And Jesus gives living water, not that we bathe ourselves in, but who washes us clean from within when we're born again. And this is so awesome. The Holy spirit cleanses us. He purifies us inside and out heart, mind, body, conscience. We can be washed clean. So having repented of our sin and turning to Christ, we're no longer under bondage to sin. We don't have to have a conscience afflicted by guilt and shame because Jesus has washed us clean, totally clean. By God's grace, we're not condemned. We're not subject to his wrath because of what Jesus has accomplished. Repenting of sin and trusting in him. That is a key. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9, 13, as we um, will close in Hebrews 9. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For the Jews that had the law and were accustomed to it, they needed convincing of what Jesus had accomplished. And you know, if you have suffered a guilty conscience for a long time, you too need to be convinced through God's word that your guilty conscience, it can be miraculously washed clean, just like your sins have been washed away. Hebrews 9, 13, 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. No amount of trying to do good or doing good can save you or undo the sin you are guilty of. It's Jesus who washes us. It's him who makes us clean with the living water of the Holy spirit. And so under the law of Moses, the uh, blood of bulls, the sacrifices, the ashes of the red heifer in the water of purification. That's how you were ceremonially cleansed. And this was done over and over. Every time you went up to Israel Whenever you were aware of sin and you confessed it in the temple, this was done again and again. And he says, how much more effective to cleanse you once and for all is the blood of Jesus, the son of God shed for you. I mean, how awesome is this that we can have a clean conscience from thinking that we can earn God's favor to receiving it as a gift, his cleansing, his salvation, his presence forever. Hebrews 9, 27, 28, it says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I mean, isn't this awesome? We don't have to fear the wrath or the judgment of God for our sin, because our sin is washed away. We can look to him with expectancy and joy. Like if you were waiting for dad to come home and he was going to administer discipline for something you had done wrong during the day, you're not looking forward to that. At least I didn't when I was in that spot, but we can eagerly look to Jesus. 
We don't need to be burdened by a guilty conscience or shame anymore for the sin we've repented of. Awesome what God has done. So in obedience to Jesus, we will take of the broken bread that symbolizes his body broken for us. We'll drink of the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood shed for us. And, and all Christians are invited and welcome to partake of communion, to proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus, who is risen and alive until he comes. Now from the gospel, we are assured that all who repent and trust in him will be found free of sin. And because God's judgment is righteous, we are cleansed forever. It's not just a temporary thing. It's not just to make us feel better. This is the spiritual reality of what Jesus has accomplished. So how grateful, thankful, humble we should be. And knowing that Jesus died for our sin, let's continue in it no longer, but turn from it and turn to Christ, adopted children of God, filled with the living water of the Holy Spirit. Could I please have the worship team come forward? And they'll lead us in a song um, and during that song, please come up and take of the bread and the cup, and then I'll lead in a prayer together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, what you have done by offering us salvation by grace through faith, that you've granted us repentance, that we can have eternal life through faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there is sin that we must turn from, Lord, make us aware of what that sin is. Help us to confess that and to forsake it and turn to Jesus. Not to say, oh, I turn to Jesus, and, but to, to not turn from sin. Lord, help us. Thank you that it's you who gives us eyes to see. It's you who raises the dead to life. And we look to Jesus on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and, and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And thank you, Lord, you've shown us what we have done that we have sinned against the living God, that we are under your wrath and judgment, rightfully so for our transgressions. And you have made a way of salvation through Jesus that we can be born again, washed clean, adopted as your children. And Lord, we, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in your sacrifice. And I pray that we would not hold on to a, a corrupt conscience anymore, uh, but we would just be free to celebrate uh, the salvation that we have in you, the new life that you've given us through Jesus Christ and uh, really rejoice in your promises and your, your salvation. So I pray Lord in this time that we would still our hearts before you, that you would guide and direct us in praying and that we would humble our hearts before you in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs>